to have an undaunted faith in an unlimited God. We really believe that there's no task too daunting, no sacrifice too great, because our God is without limit. And, and, and Jesus is worthy of everything that we can do, everything that we can attempt. And this month we've been looking at uh, the messianic, what are called messianic psalms. And these are psalms that actually predict the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. They're biblical poetry. And poetry, oftentimes if we think about poetry, poetry actually uses uh, powerful, they use words to paint images and pictures. So it's not just to engage our minds in how we think about Jesus, but really to, to provoke our hearts uh, to the worship of Jesus, to, to the amazement of who Jesus is. In Psalm 2, we looked at Jesus, the king over all the nations, that as the nations rage, that God just says, you know, all the things that you want to try to do against my son are, are nothing to me because I am the God and my son will be glorified. Uh, we looked at Psalm 22, uh, Jesus as the suffering servant, that this was another beautiful picture of who Jesus would be. And today we want to look at another unique image of Jesus, and this one is essential in understanding uh, his relationship, particularly to the church, and that is Jesus, the royal bridegroom. Now, uh, uh, we've been involved in a lot of, Rita and I have been involved in a lot of weddings in this last few months, but weddings are actually a very, um, they're a very uh, image-rich uh, type of ceremony. Uh, they use images, uh, music, attire, atmosphere uh, that's fitting to, to celebrate love and also to solemnize this particular uh, commitment that's being made before a husband and a wife. And particularly Christian weddings uh, are not just a, a promise made between two people, but they're actually a sacred covenant made in the presence of God. Now, when I, when I speak to married couples or to couples about to get married for premarital counseling, uh, I often start out with saying that very rarely do we make decisions in our lives that are irrevocable for the rest of our lives. I mean, can you imagine, like if you were to try to commit to a college of your choice or to a job of your choice or your first rental agreement and you're ready to sign the contract, and then in the small print, it says, in sickness and in health, in poverty and riches, for as long as you shall live, only death shall you part. Shall you remain in this college? Or shall you keep this job? Or shall you fulfill this rental agreement? Now, if that was actually on the contract, you would basically say, no way. I don't care how much this place, how perfect this place is, I'm not signing a contract that is till death do us part. However, in marriage, marriage is such a, a, a profound human contract where, where, where there's a meshing and the two become one and God himself uh, seals this commitment for life. Now you may wonder why does the Bible set marriage so far above all these other human commitments? Well, for one thing, God sets the marriage relationship as the foundation for human society, but also marriage is actually a picture. And we see that from scripture. It is a sacred picture of the Messiah, King Jesus, and his covenant commitment of love that he makes to his faithful people. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see how this psalm portrays Jesus the Messiah as the bridegroom who loves the church, who gave himself up for mankind with a perfect love, a perfect husband for his beautiful bride. I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 45, verse 1. Psalm 45, verse 1. 
And in reverence for the word of God, let's stand together. And actually, in the beginning, it says that this is actually a wedding song, literally a song of loves. And the psalmist says, my heart overflows with a pleasant theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies that people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, for he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, and therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And from this passage, we're going to see that we can rejoice in Jesus. He is the bridegroom because he brings his hope to his church and to the world, that this image of this bridegroom and this wedding is a very powerful picture that's gonna lead us to delight and to be reminded of what a blessed relationship we have uh, with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this psalm specifically, the, 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 the writer is writing about a particular king and a specific time, but in a larger picture, God is prophetically communicating about our relationship with God. And so this, this psalm falls basically into three sections. We're going to stick closely to this uh, literary, literary structure. First of all, it speaks about uh, the praise of the king as the groom. And this symbolizes Jesus and his love for the church. Then he goes and speaks of um, his words to the royal bride what he's advising the bride to do in preparation for this. And this symbolizes, again, the church. We, the church, as his bride, Jesus. What do we do in preparation for Jesus' coming? And then finally, he speaks about the blessed marriage of heaven, that heaven itself, when we go to heaven, when we meet Jesus, it is like um, a wedding uh, between his church uh, and Jesus Christ. So we want to look at the first, uh, Jesus the groom. And what does verse 2 say? Verse 2 says, You are the most handsome of all the sons of men. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sore on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Now, you look at this. And the psalmist is using these superlatives to describe the king. He's saying, of all the humans in the world, you are the, the most handsome. You are, are, are the most gracious, uh, that God has blessed you like forever. And he speaks in particular about three things about this king. He speaks about the meekness of the king. 
He speaks about the righteousness of the king, and he speaks about the majesty or the glory of the king, of Jesus. And these are three things that we want to uh, think about in Jesus. In verse four, it talks about meekness, um, that the king's meekness. And verse, the, the idea of meekness is not actually being weak, um, but actually it involves submitting to one's appropriate status before God. I mean, there's many ways of describing meekness or humility, but this is one of them, submitting to one's appropriate status before God. That when you, when you are standing before God, to be humble before him, to worship him, means you understand who you are uh, in position before God. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah comes into the presence of God, what does he do? He prostrates himself, he calls himself a sinner, and cries out for mercy. Now Isaiah was comparatively uh, the most righteous man of his time. But yet in the presence of God, he knew that, that his status was that he needed God's mercy, that he was doomed uh, without God's mercy. And so that was his position. In Luke chapter five, when Peter sees the miracle of Jesus, uh, P- Peter just falls on his knees and he cries out, you know, depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. And it's not that Peter wanted Jesus to go away. It's just Peter recognized that, that Jesus was the son of the most high God. And he placed himself in an appropriate posture before the presence of Almighty God. So when we think about Jesus, the Son of God, the very God himself, how does Jesus respond to the presence of his Father? Well, Jesus knows that he is sent by God to give his life on the cross for the sin of mankind. He knows that in order to do that, he must suffer humiliation, he must suffer physical torture, uh, he must suffer, uh, 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 he must die. Things that that are hard for him, uh, difficult for him, uh, but yet in meekness, Jesus submitted to his Father's will in every way. He endured every abusive word, words that he did not deserve at all but he would endure them every insult, uh, every moment when he was hanging on the cross. He humbled himself, he was obedient on the cross, and that's really describing the meekness of Jesus Christ, how far he would go to honor his Father. In verse four through seven, it refers to Jesus' righteousness, the king's righteousness. Now righteousness, again, is more than just moral perfection. Righteousness means perfectly fulfilling everything required of God's justice. We learn this in our Life Bible class studying Romans that that God is a just and holy God. And if he is just and holy, everything that he does has to fulfill this justice. He cannot leave little parts undone or say, oh, this part is not just or this doesn't work. Everything about him is righteous. Everything that he has done is complete in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect righteousness of God. We saw that in Jesus, uh, again, through the book of Romans, when Jesus died on the cross, he perfectly satisfied God's need for justice in a sin-filled world. He perfectly provided a way of salvation for every single person who would believe in him. That as God's justice demands punishment for sin, God provided that punishment through Jesus dying on the cross and, and, and taking that sin upon himself and then rising from the dead. And in, in this, God provides mercy for everyone who believes. That's how Jesus uh, is 
perfectly righteous. And if you are here today and you have never received Jesus as Savior, again, part of the story of Christmas, we always say uh, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And, 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 and what this is, is saying, you know, from a human standpoint, we may say, well, this means people treating one another well and, and bringing peace on earth. But what, what Christmas really means with the coming of Jesus Christ is that peace through the righteousness of God, through Jesus Christ, that God provided his son Jesus, not to just speak a message of everyone treat one another well, goodwill to men, but rather he gave Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin, that he was meek and he humbled himself to die on the cross so that the things that we deserve for our sin was put upon him and that, uh, that he rose from the dead showing that we have a new life so that if we uh, put our trust in him, if we confess our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ as savior, uh, that he will forgive all of our sin and give us eternal life. And if you've never received Jesus as Savior, I, I, I hope and pray that, that this Christmas time, that you'll think about really what Jesus has done for us. That's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the final thing is the glory of Jesus Christ. In verse six through nine, the psalmist speaks of the throne of the king, the scepter of the kingdom, the royal dress of the king, the, the glorious palace, the daughters of the nations honoring his glory. And, and glory uh, speaks about the idea of the worthiness of the king, uh, that, that, that Jesus is far above all the other kings and all the other kings of the nations of this world. He is beautiful, perfect, powerful, uh, far above all the kings of, these, of this world. And, and so as we come before uh, the Lord, and, and as I've mentioned again, bringing our hearts towards Christmas, I really would like us to spend time praying about these aspects of Jesus Christ. That, that when we find this week to find that place in our home where we can say today, tonight, Monday night, I really want to just praise God for Jesus' meekness, how he humbled himself and honored God's will in everything. And I want to ask God, how can I honor God in everything? And we, we set aside and say, Monday, I'm going to pray about God's meekness. Uh, Tuesday, I'm going to pray about God's righteousness. I'm going to pray about the fact that Jesus is my salvation, that he died on the cross for my sin, that he rose from the dead and, 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 and took away all of my sin. And so Tuesday, uh, just write that as a Tuesday, I'm going to really pray. And then you say, oh, Wednesday's too busy, I got this and that, but Thursday, Thursday, I'm going to pray about the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, and say, hey, Jesus is, uh, he deserves the greatest glory, the greatest praise. And so take, write these things down, these three things, the meekness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. And right now, Commit yourself and say, I'm looking at my week right now. I know what my schedule is like. I know how busy each day is. Tonight is a, is a good day. I'm going to pray about Jesus' meekness. And I'm really going to set aside that time. Monday or Tuesday, write it down. Tuesday, I'm going to pray about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm really going to sit down and I'm going to pray. Prepare my heart. Thursday, whatever, Friday, I'm going to really sit down and pray about the glory of Jesus, the idea that Jesus is above every other king, that he is worthy of anything that I can give him, that whatever sacrifice he asks of me, I'll say, that's, that's fair, that's perfectly fair. 
because God, you deserve everything for what you've done. So, so let's, the first thing we wanna do is really just uh, spend that time to, to pray and prepare ourselves and, and remind ourselves of what Jesus is, who he has done. Now verse 10, the psalmist goes on to talk about his advice to the bride. And he says to them, the bride, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear, forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. Now. I know when you look at this from a marriage standpoint, if you're just looking at this a marriage, you'd say, wow, that sounds kind of uh, yeah, subservient there, not very romantic, you know. Uh, you know, bow down before my husband. Uh, that's not part of the vows, um, <laughs> right? You know, because sometimes in modern marriage vows, there's always that phrase that the woman, the wife has to say, I promise to obey you, right? And it's interesting because even in, uh, when I do premarital counseling, some of the wives will, will ask me ahead of time for like the first, first session, oh, by the way, you know that, that part in the vow that says, uh, I promise to obey? Uh, do I have to say that, you know? <laughs> and I'll say, uh, don't worry, you know, basically to obey means to honor. And yes, it is part of the vow but yet I make both the husband and the wife tell each other that they will honor each other. So it's not, you know, the wife has to just, only the wife has to obey the husband. It's really in a marriage relationship, you promise to honor, to honor one another for the rest of your lives. And so the psalmist here is calling for the bride to honor the king, to recognize that, that, that he is the new authority in her life through this marriage. And he's calling us as a church to honor the authority of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, the psalmist gives a second important instruction to the bride. And he says, um, he says, hear, O daughter, consider this and incline your ear, forget your people in your father's house. Now again, this sounds really harsh. What, forget your people, uh, forget your father's house. Um, what does this mean? Well, in, in a biblical context, in ancient times, the bride to the king uh, may often have some type of royal status of her own, okay? So she may be a born of nobility. Her father may be a very important person, a person of great authority. And so for this bride to marry the king of Israel, this psalmist is reminding her to say, this marriage changes your allegiances. You are to let go of your allegiance to your former authority in your life, which was your father and your kingdom, and you're to be devoted to your husband, to the king, who is the one that you're going to marry. In premarital counseling, um, again, uh, so those of you who uh, have been married, uh, who I got to do your marriage, you should remember these things, okay? This is a review for you. For those of you who will want to get married someday, uh, you'll know what you're in for if you want me to do your marriage. <laughs> so premarital counseling, I always say, emphasize there's three good, there's three key relationships to a, a healthy and strong marriage, right? The first one is your relationship with God. The second is your relationship with one another. And the third is your relationship with your family of origin. Now this is biblical because in Genesis, when a marriage was first created, God told Adam, he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife and they shall become one. Now it's really interesting that God included, you know, first saying leave his father and mother. He could have just said, God could have just said, uh, and he shall cleave to his wife 
and they shall become one flesh. That seems kind of normal, but he included this idea of leaving your mother and father. So what, why is that an important part of this relationship, this new relationship they're going to have in marriage? Well, um, some newly married couples, not anyone that I married here, um, sometimes they're, one of them may be uh, what we call a mama's boy, right? We know what that is, or a daddy's girl. And sometimes they have a hard time um, getting out from under the authority of their parents when they're married. For example, as a married couple, they may, newly married couple, they may pray and talk and say, you know, we need to find a place where we're going to settle down as a couple. And they pray and talk together and they find a place together and they're ready to move in and they, they've figured out the finances and they've figured out, you know, location, all that stuff. And as they're ready, uh, the groom tells his mom and his mother says, no, you know, I don't think you should do that. I think, you know, you should wait till the market goes down. This is not a good deal because I was told that in this area, you know, or I heard that the interest rates are going down. So you just wait. Don't worry about it. Uh, uh, you should do this. And, or, or the wife's father will say, no, that's a waste. Rent is, is wasting money. Um, your mother and I, we have a, a property over here and, and we can give it to you for rent cheaper, things like that. And they'll tell you this and that. Now, and you know, we, we hear these things. Now, if a husband listens more to his mom than to his wife, we know it's going to create problems in the marriage because he has not uh, reconciled his allegiances, who is the authority. And if, if a wife gives her father's, you know, gives in to her father's authority, says, I got to do what my dad says. Sorry, you know, we can't do this anymore. Um, and, and she listens more to her father's authority rather than the authority of her husband. Um, this, too, creates disharmony in the home. And so I always tell couples, said, you got to make sure we love, our, we love our parents, we love our mom and dad, we honor them, we honor their authority, but when it comes to the decisions you make as a couple, there's this biblical principle of leaving and cleaving, and you must decide how you're going to honor your parents, but yet still remain under the authority of your husband, of, of, of the marriage relationship together, that this is your new allegiance. Now, uh, you may say, well, why, why, why am I talking about this? Um, because uh, spiritually, when we become the bride of Jesus, we also have a new allegiance. And we must be devoted uh, to Jesus alone. Jesus is our king. He is the Lord. And he, all previous kings and all other gods must be forsaken. That's really what I, I see this, this section. He is our king. We cannot let competing gods usurp the authority of Jesus Christ uh, uh, and ruin our, if you want to say, marriage relationship with God. We cannot place ourselves in debt to anything else other than Jesus. Sometimes couples will say, uh, I want to borrow money from my parents so we can buy a house. And the next question I will always ask is, that will put you in debt to your parents. So let me ask you, is that gonna create a problem with control? Because if it is, then you do not want to enter into that debt even though it may be, you may be able to get a better house, you may be able to get a nicer place, but if it places you in debt to someone who you know is gonna control your life, then I would rather you live in a place that's not so nice, but at least you have the freedom as a couple to honor what God wants for you in your life together. This is the same thing when we talk about putting ourselves in debt to the world or in debt 
to human uh, people or in debt to whatever that allowing uh, other things, things other than Jesus Christ to control our lives. Where we may talk with God and we may say, uh, talk with Jesus and we may say, this is what God wants me to do for sure. I know that this is the way to honor Jesus Christ. And then we sit back and say, oh, but you know what? My work. My boss not going to let me do this. This is just not going to work. This is not, it's just, I can't do this. Or we may say, oh, financially, you know, we, can't, we can't afford this. You know, we, we put ourselves in this financial situation or we want this financial situation and therefore we can't really do what, I can't really do what I already talked with Jesus about and know that this is what Jesus wants me to do. We can't let other people, we can't let our culture we can't let our own fears and our doubts have, fear, have control. Take the authority, usurp the authority of Jesus Christ. That's really what this means when he's saying, consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house. It's not about dishonoring familial bonds. It is about uh, our relationship with Jesus Christ. We honor Jesus fully fully devoted to him above all others. And then with these two injunctions, the psalmist gives us a promise. He says in verse 11, and the king will desire your beauty, verse 12, and the people of Tyre will, will, favor, will favor with gifts the richest of the people. Now again, uh, what this says is that your devotion to Jesus Christ is what makes you beautiful. It will make you attractive. It will be what makes you lovely in the presence of God. Uh, the people of Tyre, now Tyre was at this time was a very powerful uh, center of trade in the area of Phoenicia. And the psalmist is telling the bride that if you honor your husband, you will display uh, something in your life that even the wealthiest of nations will seek out. And I believe that the saying to us is that when we honor God you know, with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength, there will be given to us a beauty and a richness that will be sought out even from those who seem to have everything in this world. Think about it. I mean, a lot of times, especially here in Silicon Valley, we say, well, it's hard to share the gospel because man, everybody's got everything. Uh, peace, they got peace. Uh, wealth, they have wealth. Um, they, 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 anything they want. They're not struggling. They, they, you know, trying to buy something for Christmas. They got everything. Well, what do they need? And we say, well, as a Christian, you know, the, the gospel, what, what, what possibly could I have that the richest people in this world would actually consider. And this is, this is, I believe that this is part of it, that, 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 that the psalmist is saying to the bride that, that if you honor your husband above all things, that even uh, the, the people entire, they will come and they will present gifts to you. They will say that you're so beautiful, I must come and give my devotion uh, uh, to you and, 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 and see what is it that makes you so beautiful? What is it that makes you who you are? And in the same way, I really believe that, that our devotion to Jesus Christ that if we not we don't have to say you know God makes my life wonderful or God makes my life happy or or I'll tell you why it's better to believe in God than not we just say you know I love Jesus more than anything else in the world and there's nothing else no other God that I will serve
There's nothing that I would not attempt if it will honor God. Nothing I will not attempt. And there's nothing I would ever give up. I mean, there's, there's nothing that I would never give up for the sake of Jesus Christ because he's worthy. If that's the message we give and that's how we live in front of our families, in front of our coworkers, in front of our neighbors, in front of our friends that we've been sharing the gospel with for so many years or whatever, I believe these are the things that, 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 that are gonna be the greatest witness to show that Jesus is above all other gods. He's above all other gods. And he is worthy. And the beauty and, and, and the beauty of Jesus Christ will be seen in us through this particular devotion. So as we think about Christmas, again, hear, O daughters, consider, incline your ear. Hear, O church, forget your people and your father's house. What this means is we say, Jesus, your beauty and your glory makes me forget, and we fill in the blank. Your beauty and your glory makes me forget my fears that control me. Jesus, your beauty and your glory makes me forget the temptations of this world and the promises of this world that, that I so long for, that, that, that seem to always pull Pull my heart. Jesus, your beauty and your glory makes me forget all the obligations that I always feel like I have to please people all the time and get their approval. It makes me forget that I need their approval. I don't need their approval. Why? Because of the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. So whatever that is, you feel that in yourself. And we say, you know, what is it that, that holds you back? What is it that has control in my life that I can say to Jesus, when I perceive your beauty and glory, it makes me forget all the other gods that control my life, that, that, that control uh, my decisions when they should not. And so we've looked at this, we've looked at the, the majesty of Jesus, the groom, the, the, the responsibility of the bride. The final element is the hope and the blessing of uh, this holy union. Verse 16, it says, in the place of your fathers shall be your sons and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So basically, in a poetic way, this is saying, may you have lots of children. And that's basically what it's saying. It's the prayer of every mother of the bride, uh, usually that happens right after the wedding. Um, but the idea is not really so much that they have lots of children, but this is the idea of extending the reign of the king. He said, the king, you are so majestic, you are so righteous, you are so glorious in your beauty. Um, may your reign extend forever and ever, from generation to generation. This speaks of the eternal reign of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, when you come, may your reign last forever and ever. May they bring peace on earth. And in verses three through five, it's interesting because you hear these, you hear these kind of images that you don't often associate with marriages. This is this girding your sword, these sharp arrows, uh, enemies falling behind you. And you look at this and go, you know, I don't really think about, when I think about weddings, I don't think about, you know, a sword or or, 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 you know, people don't carry arrows, although that might be kind of cool in some wedding if you want to try that. Um, uh, but anyways, oh, I was at a military wedding. They had the Marine Guard, and they actually did hold the swords up, and everybody walked through, and I thought that was kind of cool. But normally, you don't have these military images uh, in, 
in a, in a wedding. So, uh, but, but this image of swords and arrows, really they speak about a reign of peace. It speaks about a time when, when Jesus comes to receive his beautiful bride and there will be peace, eternal peace, victory over sin, victory over sorrow, victory over death, victory over Satan, victory over the curse of sin. When Jesus receives his beautiful bride, he will bring peace, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more crying, no more death, there'll be peace forever and ever. This is the hope of this great wedding of Jesus and the church, and, 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 and he will bring this end. This is that glorious wedding. This is the, uh, uh, the joy that, that, that we look forward to when Jesus returns. Verse uh, 13, uh, he speaks about the beautification of the bride. And he says, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king. And uh, this is interesting because um, you know, it talks about the idea that when the, girl, when the, the bride goes out, uh, she is beautified. And, and, and we, we know from the story of Esther, you know, they spend a lot of time you know, beautifying, doing the makeup and uh, doing everything to make her perfect. And, and we, you know, we have that now, right? I mean, for those of you who've gotten married, um, you know that there's a lot of preparation that goes into uh, a, a wedding, right? Because if you're a bride, especially, uh, the wedding may be at two or three o'clock, but you've got to get up at 6 a.m., right? And you have to get up early in the morning, do your nails, pluck your eyebrows, right? Get your hair done, uh, stand still while the person does the makeup. And you know, it's not always pleasant. It's not always peaceful. But what is it doing? It's preparing us for the wedding, to meet our husband. Now seriously, I know for many of us in this world, um, life is not easy, all right? It's very hard. Sometimes God leads us on a path where we have to sit and allow him to refine our character, and it's painful. I don't want to wait sometimes. Sometimes we, we flinch in pain when, when he's plucking out those hindrances to holiness, removing the blemishes of our sin, refining us together. We squirm, we hold our breath when he's dressing us in this custom-made designer righteousness of Jesus Christ. But as these things go on in our life, we're just reminded that this suffering is being done to make us beautiful. To make us beautiful for Jesus. Right? Every day of our life here on earth, for all of our spiritual journey, right? We're going through a spiritual makeover. We, we are, in a sense, being uh, uh, taking, God is taking these cracked and, and broken jars of clay, and day by day, he is magnifying this, this beauty that is within us. And he's saying to us, you take heart, you have hope, that even in the face of the most unbearable suffering, we have a hope. And I know for Christmas time, sometimes Christmas time is, is the most difficult time for many people, it's a time of sadness, it's a time of loneliness, it's a time of hardship, and, 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 but God is saying, but this is a time of hope, and be a reminder that even in that loneliness and that struggle, that nothing is without purpose, that all of this, every sacrifice, every tear, every wound that you experience in life right now, 
now is preparing you, preparing me, beautifying our soul so that we will be more like Jesus Christ. We will be this beautiful bride um, that, uh, that, 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 that comes before Jesus in that time when, 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 we're, when, when, when Jesus receives us in heaven. Um, you know, people always wonder what will heaven be like. And, um, you know, we have a lot of images of hell from scripture, and they really resonate with us, because it's like, you know, burning sulfur, and we kind of know what that, that sounds really painful, darkness, you know, fear, screaming and crying. So those, those images resonate with us, like it's fearful. But it's hard to find images that, about heaven that resonate with us, right? Because they'll say, you know, it's like a gold pavement, and I'm like, mm, okay, gold pavement, that doesn't, somehow that doesn't make me feel like excited that it's gold pavement or, you know, jewels in the, in the walls and things like that. And I said, well, okay, that's good, but what image would really resonate um, to describe how I'm longing for heaven? Now, I believe that this image uh, is, is it. And again, you hopefully you won't cry and hopefully Rita will let me go through this because uh, she always says I'm not supposed to talk about her. But in our wedding, uh, Rita and I had decided that on the wedding day that we would not see each other until the entrance of the bride of the ceremony, which is hard. I mean, it takes time. You know, you've got to make sure that I, you know, she gets into the church first and she's all hidden away and doesn't come out. I don't get to see her. And so I'm in the waiting room with my groomsmen and I'm nervously, you know, waiting for that moment. And, uh, and then I walk out on the stage. It's been 30 years now, but I still never forget this moment. So I walk out on the stage. The, the pastor leads me up. I'm with my friends. And my, my, my best man actually dropped the ring, picked it up right when we're going out. So I was like, ah, oh, you know. And so we're standing out there, and I'm waiting. And I, I'm sitting there kind of nervous because it's huge, you know. And, and it's, it's a really weird sensation when you walk out the door and you finally see all these people and you hear the music and it's just kind of blinding and you're kind of like dazed a little bit uh, and you're nervous. And so you slowly listen to the procession and, um, and each of the bridesmaids you know, comes down, the maid of honor comes down and then the door, door closes and you know, hey, this is it. And then you hear the, 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 the procession play, you hear the doors open and then Rita's standing there. And my friends said, said, we knew that you had not seen Rita before the wedding. And I said, how did you know? He said, because we saw the expression on your face. And I was like, I have no idea, you know, what my, I was like, you know, I have no idea what the expression on my face was. <laughs> but I knew that, you know, seeing Rita, uh, well, I would say seeing my bride, so I don't embarrass Rita. Seeing my bride, dressed as she was, beautiful as she was, my heart just like leaps out of the chest. My eyes just well up with tears. And I felt like that this is the moment that I've been waiting for, you know, for so long. And I always remember that moment. And now here's the thing is, when I think of Jesus, I believe that this is what Jesus will feel at the end of time, when the church, you and I, his people, have journeyed our difficult path in this world, when God has finished refining and beautifying this, this, this bride for his beloved son, and he presents us 
you and me to Jesus, to be with him forever. That Jesus will look at us and his heart will, will leap out of his chest. His eyes will well up with tears. And he will receive us as his beautiful bride you know, for all eternity. That's, that's our hope. Um, that, that, that's our future. That, that's what we look forward to as we think about the time when Jesus will come and, and all of the, the suffering and sorrows and struggles are done. And we're standing there before Jesus Christ and both of us are saying, the time has finally come. After this long journey, we are now going to be together forever and ever. Let's go ahead and let's bow our heads in a time of prayer. As we think about these things in this image, let's again reflect on our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's reflect on the love that he has for us that we know we do not 